podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called How Losing Your Job Could Be the Best Thing That Ever Happened to You. In 1977, a man called Stephen Pyle founded the Not Terribly Good Club of Great Britain for people who prided themselves on their incompetence. Two years later, he was fired as president for writing a best-selling book, and the club subsequently had to close after receiving 20,000 membership applications. Even as failures, he said, we failed. In 2007, a New Zealand woman was fired for overusing caps locks in work emails, and I'd say that's fair. Anthony Burgess was fired from the Yorkshire Post for a negative review of a book he'd written under a pseudonym. And in 2018, a Chinese kindergarten principal was fired after pupils were welcomed back to the school with a pole dancing display. I've been told last year to get headphones for my podcast. I went large. That's my guest today, coach, mentor and writer of best-selling book, Why Losing Your Job Could Be the Best Thing That Ever Happened to You, Eleanor Tweddle. Now, before I give you a last couple of bits of job loss trivia, I know you can't wait, I just want to thank everyone who took the time to get in touch about last week's episode with Danny Wallace. It seems to be one of the favourites so far. So please remember, if you like what we're doing with the podcast, rate us on iTunes, leave a review and tell all your lovely pals. So anyone who thinks being unemployed is for losers, think again. Scrabble was invented by an unemployed architect by the name of Alfred Butts. That's a 10 and a seven letter word if you're interested. Nice try, Alfred. And a man called George Roth won gold for club swinging, didn't know that was a thing, at the 1932 Olympics. At the time he was unemployed and at the end of the ceremony, he hitchhiked home. I've been for DJ sort of headphones. As well as being a best-selling author, Eleanor is the founder of Another Door, an organisation she set up to help people through the space that opens after career doors close. In the words of Alexander Graham Bell, when one door closes, another door opens, but we so often look so long and so regretfully upon the closed door that we do not see the ones which open for us. Eleanor and I talked about free thinking, motivational theory, liminality, Grief, failure, rejection, falling down, standing up, selfish thinking, bouncing back, loss, imposter syndrome and family. But I started by asking her about the last time we spoke, when she had to cut off the call abruptly to go and help with herding some escaped sheep. a high point of <laughs> of uh online it was when we were all first getting used to online wasn't it and we just sort of I just moved up back up here to Cumbria and yeah you saw my mum sort of crawling in the background <laughs> and putting a note on my laptop and then you were like no come on tell me what's on that no and I was like oh my god it says hurry up we need help with the sheets 
<laughs> that's so much better than when people just don't get their wi-fi sorted and just leave you to have to go to help with the sheep is the best zoom excuse ever so <laughs> so that's mainly why i wanted you on the podcast is that like anyone whose life has their mum crawling on the floor begging them to help with the sheep deserves a place on namaste motherfuckers so <laughs> yeah it's pretty so, standard now <laughs> is it? And you also, your little girl, um, Hannah's your little girl, isn't she? Yeah. She was also, I think she came in, she made at least one appearance as well. And I was very struck by um, her and how lovely she was. Yeah, yeah. She's been on just about any anything that I've done during lockdown because it's just me and her in the house. So, uh, yeah, she's been on my um, coaching calls. She's been on my workshops. She's been on podcasts. Yeah, she she's uh, she's all over it. Well, let me know if she comes in and I'll make sure the swearing gets turned down to a minimum. <laughs> well, no, she's all good with all that stuff. She's all fine. <laughs> it's not always the most PG podcast, although obviously the life advice would be hugely... How old is she? How old is Hannah? Six. Six. Yeah, the life advice would be great for Hannah. I'm sure she I'm sure she needs it. It's a good place, <laughs> actually. Talking about Hannah is a nice place to start because the dedication in your book, um, it says to Hannah, hoping you never need this book, but if you do, you know it's going to be okay. So um, for anyone who hasn't read your book, do you want to say, uh, yeah, what it's called? Oh God, I don't know why I find this really hard. Like how many times have I been asked to say my book title and I still hesitate because it's quite long. Why losing your job could be the best thing that ever happened to you. So by losing your job could be the best thing that ever happened to you. And it's um, it's subheading is five simple steps to thrive after redundancy. So you published it quite early on in lockdown, but you obviously were working on it before lockdown. So at a time when loads of people lost their jobs, you happened to be publishing the perfect book. Was that just serendipity? Yeah, it was kind of weird, wasn't it? It's, it was very odd, though, because it suddenly felt like I was capitalising on what was going on. It felt really awkward. But yeah, you, I started writing that about three years ago. So I was made redundant now, five years ago, um, and sort of started writing a blog and all that kind of stuff. And then got a deal with Penguin two years ago, which then meant the book came out in November. So yeah, it, it felt really odd. Obviously, I got over myself and just went out there and celebrated the book for what it was. But yeah, at some point, I did start to feel like, oh, my God, does this does this is this really awkward that I'm trying to tell everyone that it's great they've lost their jobs is that just the weirdest message but no it's been really good and I've had loads of nice messages from people so it's funny because when I saw it and I guess that this is the perils of social media isn't it that you sort of think there's one idea that seems to you logical and nice and altruistic and kind and then you realize there's all these other opinions and of course people are entirely entitled to their opinions but when I saw that you and our paths had crossed obviously professionally and um, for anyone listening so we'd, we'd you know you run a company called Another Door which works on helping people through through change and the space in between things so I'd done a kind of a couple of speaking engagements through you and when I saw you publish the book, I was like, how brilliant, what a lovely thing to put out into the world. But I guess there, was there a backlash then? Is that what you're saying? That people sort of thought it was, was you trying to make money out of people having lost their jobs? What, what was the backlash? I think the backlash was in my head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so not on Twitter. I don't think it was Just an delusions. actual real backlash. <laughs> I think it was actually the people in my head that live in my head. Um, yeah, I think it was me more than anyone else. I mean, I think there was like, a couple of comments on Twitter about um, 
you know, like the good old Twitterati with their, someone said middle class posh, you know, only a middle class person with privileges could believe this, um, which I took as a compliment because I, I have to remind myself that I'm middle class. So I was like, oh, thanks very much. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there was a little bit of that. But actually, when I started um, publicising it and talking about it and kind of describing it as a book of hope and when people read it and realised it was, you know, it's quite honest with how hard it is, I think then it moved into a kind of, you know, people got it. So, yeah, more backlash in my head than... In your head. It's, it's really kind of reassuring to know that everybody has that, that, um, that idea that we kind of get in our own way. We don't even need anyone else to. We're just like, oh, no, I've got all that. I've got the criticism, why I shouldn't. Um, why I should have just stayed in bed. I've got it all in my head. I don't actually need to hear it from anyone, anyone real <laughs> in the world. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about um, that feeling of sort of get, getting it wrong or imposter syndrome um, in a bit, because I know that's in your book. But um, one of the, th- so the, the stages of your book, you, you, you break the book up. First of all, we should say it's kind of um, not a manual, but you don't need to sort of read it in one go, right? It's a sort of workbook. So it's, it's not, you don't sort of read it as a self-help book and then wander off. You're meant to sort of actively do stuff. Do you want to explain a bit about how the book works? Yeah, it's kind of like that. It was written to sort of dip in and out of and find your moment when you're in it. But it's quite a short book. So actually the most people who contact me and say they've read it, I've actually read it in one sitting. <laughs> Sometimes I go, ooh, does that mean I'm quite simple? <laughs> Again, you know, that's <laughs> well, they're very quick readers. They might be very quick readers. <laughs> like, three oh, sittings. So now I'm like, what's wrong with me? Why didn't I do it in one go? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, yeah, a, a lot of people just go for it and get stuck in. And But, yes, it was meant to be um, these steps that actually at any point in time we all get a bit stuck or sometimes we feel overwhelmed and we need to slow down or sometimes we're, like, ready to go for it. Well, how do you go for it? So you can go to that chapter and just kind of refresh yourself and go through these questions and, and all, all about asking yourself more questions. So that's what Another Door is all about questions and space to properly answer it so kind of what the book's around although there's a lot of storytelling in it as well so I guess I guess people can read it in one sitting that's fine I won't be offended by that but yeah in and out scribble on it you know take what you need from it and it's 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 interesting when you think about what you've kind of gone through to get to the point of writing the book so you it's about redundancy and and one of the opening stories of the book is you talking about yourself getting made redundant and conversation you had with your husband and your daughter Uh, tell us a bit about that because I I suspect lots of people listening will have been made redundant or will be in bits of the industry you know like like you know people do what I do in the arts you know everything's just been destroyed and we're all trying to rebuild ourselves so what was that experience like for you what happened yeah, so I was made redundant, a big corporate career. So I've been in corporate for a long time, got made redundant. Um, it was all a bit awkward. Um, the job sort was still there, but it wasn't there, but it was there. It was all that kind of stuff. There was a big redundancy program. So about 200 of us all left together. Um, but because my job was sort of there, but it wasn't there, you know, legal requirements, it was very different. Um, I kind of wanted to stay on because we were in the middle of like as a family we were thinking we were gonna have more family you know we, it was more life decisions going on than career. so this was with a little how old was Hannah then she was three then okay um yeah so she'd be two two, two turning three 
and then yeah we were sort of trying for another baby and all that sort of stuff so I was like well no I want to stay in this job I was quite enjoying it you know I was doing really well at it so it wasn't that I was hating what I was doing I actually loved it I was running the graduate program at the time and um, I loved it so it wasn't that and so I kind of fought hard to get the job that still existed but I didn't get it and then it was all just turned into corporate politics you know as it does and um yeah the bit with the husband my husband and my daughter I just felt so embarrassed about it and like I'd let them down Mm -hmm. that was the moment you know when you kind of get the call to say no you haven't got the job so therefore you're being made redundant I felt really like oh my god what have I done because it was just before Christmas you feel like you've ruined Christmas for everybody suddenly you're in panic you know how am I gonna get through Christmas, I need a job, you know, all of this stuff started happening. And did you need, so financially, you needed a job as well as obviously there are lots of other reasons we have jobs in terms of self-esteem. I remember I've only been Mm. made redundant once and that was from Carlton Television when there was a big Carlton Granada merger to become ITV. And I elected for voluntary redundancy, but it never quite feels voluntary. Like it was the sort of lesser of two evils is the best way I think voluntary redundancy can be described. And I just had no idea how much it would hit me. I mean, I literally, I was also going through breaking up with my kid's dad at the time. So it was a bit of a shit time. But I remember my diary having been so much too busy raising small children and with a big job. And then the horror of looking at my diary and there was nothing in it. And redundancy is a really good word for it because I literally felt redundant. I was like, well, I am of no use to man nobbies, this is I've fallen off the edge of a cliff and it it's your book and we'll talk about the stages you talk about but I did feel that I went into kind of a, a grieving cycle a bit like somebody had died that's how it felt to me looking back at it and it took me that that cycle of grief I had to sort of work it through to be able to do something next where are you on that sort of idea of sort of the cycle of grief and and loss when you lose a job yeah huge completely and it is um I think it is like breaking up with someone um, Mm. when you get made redundant. It's exactly the same. Mm. And you spend a lot of time thinking, but what did I do? Shall I email them? Shall I fight this? It's not fair. They need to explain more. Trying to get time in with your line manager for them to justify it. What are they going to do without me? You know, you go through all of the same stuff as if you broke up with someone. It's exactly the same. Yeah, the the grief side, I think, is the part that people don't realise. And mm-hmm. um, when you lose your job, they just push through and think, right, I just need to get another job. I need mm-hmm. to solve this by getting another job. And we go into panic zones. So we go out and you're right. You get the horror of having nothing in your diary after being an incredibly busy person. Mm-hmm. And instead of enjoying that and going, oh, OK, I'm going to try and enjoy this, we try and fill it because that's our comfort zone Mm -hmm. so we press apply button on LinkedIn like 400 times for jobs we don't want jobs you know you you wouldn't even think about the week before but now suddenly yeah let's go for it and then you get rejected from jobs you don't want and all of this emotion gets whipped up so I think the grief side is the sort of step one of the book which is like just just kind of be in shock and embrace shock and know that you are in a state of kind of trauma in whatever it's coming out and another door was about um that door closing Mm -hmm. so someone came up to me on the day that um we were also being told (laughs) and said you know that helpful cliche oh well you know when one door closes another one will open Mm -hmm. and at that moment in time I just felt like someone yeah I was literally like are you fucking joking like no (laughs) absolutely not go away 
Um, but it sort of stuck in my head and I thought, okay, not quite sure why it stuck in my head, but I'll park it. And I was still in sort of the anger and frustration and, you know, panic mm-hmm. part. But eventually when you start um, acknowledging a door's closed and actually, is this an opportunity? And do I want to do something else? It shifts mm-hmm. and suddenly you can own that next space. So that's where I suddenly started writing. So I was just blogging about all oh, this space. Is this an opportunity? Mm-hmm. You know, like a door's closed. I'm now in this space in between. Well, what do you do? I have no idea. I've been in corporate for 25 years. What do you do next? It's funny that um, there's, I've been talking a lot on the sort of speaking circuit about that liminal period, you know, liminality where you're betwixt and between and you've lost what went before and you don't know yeah. yet what's coming next. And I love the idea. There's some really, I can't remember any of the quotes. I'll put them in the show notes, a couple of really lovely quotes about it, but that how productive the time when you're seemingly doing nothing is. So if you can just sit in that liminal period and so many of us are in that period with in regard to COVID and what's gone on the last 18 months. But the fact that sometimes it's the bit where you're doing nothing, it's a bit like when you're trying to write and it's when you you put in the hours at your desk and then you go off for a walk and the idea comes. And perhaps without that liminal period where you're just between things and not doing, perhaps you can't then go on and do what you might go on to do afterwards. So it is still productive. Is that how it was for you, do you think, when you look back at it, that bit where you were between things? Yeah, it, it just probably wasn't as beautiful as that. <laughs> it was probably really messy and like quite a lot of hobnobs. Like well, it is a, eating hobnobs. Mean... <laughs> that part of that stage. But you do, I do think though with it, it never is beautiful at the time. So you look yeah. back at it, it's like there are bits of the pandemic. I'm already looking back at going, oh, this time last year I was planting tomato plants. I had no work. <laughs> but actually I was miserable this year. I've got loads of work and no time for tomato plants and I'm complaining. But when I when I work as a coach, and I know you do lots of work in that space too, and I used to do you know more of it than I do now, but the idea, I always used to say to people who lost their jobs, I'd say if you can trust me, that is really likely a year from now, you'll look back at right now and say, if yeah. only I'd taken a bit of time off and enjoyed it because I'm flat out again. If you could just trust me, that's very likely to be the case and sort of enjoy it. And I think if you knew what was coming next, yeah, the bit in between would feel really delicious. But because you don't, <laughs> you've just got to lie on the sofa eating biscuits and crying. <laughs> Yeah. So it was a so it was a difficult and, and you talk in your book about five stages. So there's shock, stuck, slow, slow go, unstuck, thrive. Which again, when I read it, I thought, is that deliberately a slight, not a spoof on the grief cycle, but is it is it influenced mm. by the five stages of grief? Well, I found that afterwards when I started doing the actual real research for the book. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, all oh, right. <laughs> it, it was more um when I was writing the blog just about oh this is this is really awful we've all lost our jobs and I I, we had kept meeting ex-colleagues that had also lost lost their job for coffee and cake because at that point you could meet people and it was there was a lot of cake a lot of sugar a lot of a lot of cake eating that's how you got through losing your job at that point in time and um and I just kept saying I I just think there's something else but there should be like a manual that helps you through steps Mm -hmm. of what you do next if you Mm -hmm. don't just want to get a job and um, kept saying this, and then eventually I said, "Oh, I'm going to write a book about it because, like, there clearly is there needs to be a manual." And I started writing a blog, and I realised there was like pockets of things, like the sadness, which mm-hmm. then became shock, and then stuck it was a recurring theme of just feeling stuck all the time, but also feeling like there's hope. So mm-hmm. stuck is actually this kind of realization that, well, yeah, but what if? 
what mm. if something amazing comes out of this what if I can make this like what if this is the start of something even more exciting so that was kind of the stuck part and then when you release that ideas into the world and you get really excited and post-it notes go up all around your living room and you get it sounds you like know, writing an Edinburgh show we have a lot of post-it <laughs> notes when we're creating a show <laughs> yours might be even funnier than ours are at that point <laughs> It's essential. Well, some of the ideas, certainly. Like, yeah, I'm going to do this, do that. Crazy ideas. And and some ideas, unfortunately, that I actually did, which I definitely shouldn't have done. But what, what, tell me one start, of the ideas you did that you, we always like to hear people who seem successful who screwed a few things up. What were some of the ones you shouldn't oh, have Oh, I did really, really weird stuff. I um, oh, I joined a three-month, I think it was three-month program to become a social media manager. Right. Um. And it was sort of like a mum's thing. And one, I'm not really like in mom, the mum's club kind of thing. Mm-hmm. As in, it wasn't that, a mum's net thing. It was just a thing that was through yeah. other, other mums. Yeah. yeah. Um, what Another thing was I was head of comms at that time. So I actually knew how to do social media. and I would have a team of people doing mm-hmm. that. So why I thought I needed to do that, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then when I actually started doing the figures of like how much you could make as a social media manager, I was like, this is like, this is nowhere near what I'm earning. Like, what am I doing? You know, mm-hmm. what am I actually? So I devaluated myself. By so you were downsizing 100%. without meaning to. Yeah. Yes. So putting in yeah, evening yeah. classes to do something you didn't want to do that paid less. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, don't listen to Eleanor, everybody, if you want life don't lessons. Is, um, it's funny that stuck, that feeling of being stuck. When when um, lockdown first started, and you probably know this because we were in touch at the time, and when my diary totally emptied in terms of live engagements and so on, and I hadn't done much coaching for years at that point, I was doing the odd bit of executive coaching, but I didn't really have the time anymore, much as I used to love it. And so I, I did um, 100 one-off, one-hour pro bono coaching sessions for people in the creative communities. So I put word out there and did it sort of through people, um, you know, on Facebook and stuff. So I did these 100 sessions and two things that every single person I spoke to had in common. And they were very sort of diverse group of people, albeit within the arts. One of them was that everybody thought everyone else was coping better than them. So every single person said that. And the other thing every single of the 100 people said was that they felt stuck. And it really, and at the time I was very stuck as well. And it was such a relief to know that being stuck is a collective experience. And I suppose what you're doing with the book is what feels very personal and very rejecting being made redundant. You have some frame of reference to go, it isn't just me. I'm not a complete useless arsehole who's let everyone down. This is an experience that most people go through and it really, it's not me, it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it did. It's really, and it gives people some sort of, so the stuck bit, so the shock and the stuck bit, it, it, one of the things that's interesting in kind of coaching and self-help and self-development is where you draw the line between leaning into something without it then becoming wallowing and I can't ever get out of it. So there's an element in your book of accept it, embrace it, sit with it but somehow you've got to get unstuck again or you'll just be sitting in it forever. So what's the balance? How do people navigate those two things? Yeah, and I think that's, um, I would say the moment that stuck comes into your head, like, oh, I'm actually stuck, or you maybe hear yourself saying it, that is the moment that you can actually reframe it and say, oh my God, I'm not wallowing anymore. I'm ready, I'm sort of facing that next door. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm ready to look at the future rather than being, you know, looking at the past. So Isn't that because you're taking that. ownership for the fact you're stuck? Yeah. So you're saying I'm owning the fact I'm stuck as opposed to life's yeah. been horrible to me. That's exactly it. You, yeah. you suddenly started to change like how you're 
framing this and say, right, I'm going to own whatever happens next. And mm-hmm. even just saying that, you probably will feel different about it. Mm-hmm. And then, as I said, you know, using that opportunity to just go wild a little bit, like just free think a little bit around, but what if, what would be the, the best case scenario? Like we talk about um, your ideal tomorrow. So I try and get people to really start thinking about if all everything that you wanted came true tomorrow, so you got up and everything was like, yeah, there you go, there you go. What would you be doing? What's happened? Um, who are you talking to? What are you doing? And start to really put yourself in that space of, yeah, well, what if this ideal scenario actually started happening? Because I think a lot of people just um, start surviving. So they mm-hmm. just get up each day and look at the job board, hope for the best they see something. Mm-hmm. And as you know, as I say, click the apply button and then that's it. It becomes worst start, case, doesn't it? Instead yeah, of ambitious. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's it. It's funny that idea of um, that there's some stuff, we'll put it in the show notes, some um, kind of coaching exercises around like the future perfect and allowing yourself, you know, the classic life coaching thing where yeah. when a client starts, you say, you know, sketch out your life in 3D, technicolor, present tense, if anything were possible and you couldn't fail, what would a day be like? And it's amazing how that the idea of sort of motivational thinking moving towards something compelling rather than away from something upsetting, even though the trajectory might look really similar, the motivation is massively different. So there's an element in this. I I know, um, and again, I'll cut this if you don't want it in there, because it might be that this is the thing everyone gets to at the end of the book, and I've blown it, told you how the (laughs) film ends. But your top tip to thrive at the end, you say, if if you do just one thing, write down in big words, your ideal tomorrow scenario. If it were all to come together and your ideal scenario were to exist, what would it look like? And then you say, okay, the intention is set. You were on your way. So how do you counter that? There'll be people listening to that and they go, yeah, great. So I, you know, I could say, well, I want to be on live at the Apollo and I want to be hosting my own show on channel four. And, and, and I could say to you cynically, well, I can't do any of that tomorrow, Eleanor. So what's the point? So what do you say to people who say things like that? Yeah, you've got to do your work. So Mm -hmm. I think you've got to decide that that's what you want. And then that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's not overnight. And it's not that you're going to even have this moment of everything coming true. It's not that. It's not that we're saying that's what's going to happen. It's not universal ordering like Noel Edmonds. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just to be clear. Well, I mean, you know, it could be, but probably not. Um, But I think the idea is unless you even start to play with that. So unless you even start to to tell yourself, I want to be on Channel 4 and I'm going to have a show it's, of course, it's never going to happen. So you're always going to be just in that space, that 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 space that has devalued yourself and applying for social media manager jobs. That's mm-hmm. what you're because you're holding yourself in mm-hmm. that space. But the fact that you've just allowed yourself even 10 minutes of just thinking a bit bigger and allowing that free thinking with no yeah, buts or cynicism or anything like that, that starts it going. And the amount of people that I've now worked with that that's actually happened. And yeah, not overnight. But in a few months' time, in a year's time, mm-hmm. in five years' time, suddenly they they are closer to where they want to be. Um, and the other thing I'd say is it's not always about doing. It's not mm-hmm. always about what you have and what you do. It's how how you are, and yeah. you can be you can work on how you want to be straight away. So if yeah. you want to be more fulfilled, find ways of being more fulfilled straight away. So that's the other side of it. It's as much how you do it as what you're doing, I think. And I, I always think, um, again, as a, as a coach, all, all you're really doing is unlocking options with somebody, aren't you? They do the hard work. 
And when you run out of things as to what you can do, if you start to ask yourself, how can I do it? You often get the kind of the clues. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting as well with what you're saying, because one of the things, and again, lots of people who listen to the podcast are kind of in the, um, not everybody by any means, but there's lots of people who are sort of in the arts or in comedy or whatever. And professional jealousy and kind of competing with other people around you is such an unhealthy part of so many professions, particularly the one I'm now in. And it was a real revelation to me when I lost a couple of really big opportunities at the start of lockdown. And I, I realized after a real sort of grieving of these things that had gone and I didn't know if they'd come back just when I thought I was on the cusp of sort of making it, whatever that means. And then I had this real revelation. Where I thought, well, if I had got all of those things, there was absolutely nothing to say that I would be any happier than I am today. So all that's making me unhappy is the fact I didn't get them. So that's actually what I'm <laughs> grieving. I'm grieving something I never had. But the thing that if I had, and it's a bit like, you know, money doesn't make you happy, but not having enough money will make you unhappy. And sometimes it is about knowing what you're consciously letting go of as well, isn't it? So it's mm-hmm. it's about having the ambition, but also going, well, actually, I don't want to go after that or that or that. So if I put the energy into those things, I'm not even allowing myself to go after the thing I might really want. So is that a part of articulating what it is you actually want? So you know what, what you don't want? Yeah, definitely. Is what I'm going to say to that. <laughs> Longest question, shortest answer, and Namaste, motherfuckers. That trophy goes to. <laughs> There's a few of my questions on this. I'm like, yeah, that was so long when I listened back. How could I just felt like it? I was learning something there, and I forgot that I was actually meant to be answering something at the end. I was like, oh, that's really good. Oh shit, I've got to actually think about this. Uh, no, but it's, that's you're, you're right though. I think that sort of tussle. Um, what I was actually thinking about was that what you said at the beginning, like we actually start benchmarking ourselves on yeah. things, don't we? And start saying things that don't exist right usually. Yeah. Oh, oh that, that chatter again, that, that voice in your head. Um, and the, it's all right for them definitely comes to the surface hugely in all sorts of weird ways. Um, I, you know, I coach people who get stuck in, it's all right for them because, well, you know, I'm a single person and it's all right for those people with partners because the partner can help out and, I I'm a that sounds like you were coaching uh, me <laughs> yeah there you, go. <laughs> there you go I was doing the impression but you know that there, there's all sorts of different it's all right for them scenarios I think that come up and we again start writing a really nice script about poor me and we get stuck in our pity party and then we start enjoying the pity party we actually quite like it we're like yeah poor me you know and we get really comfortable and so I think what the work is, is what you described. It's about actually, no, that's not a great way to live. You can live in a different way. Everybody can get up every single day and decide how they want to be. Everybody can. Um, Of course, it takes work. Of course, it takes a lot of energy, but you can. You don't have to wallow every day. You can get up and go, right, okay, how can I just be grateful for what I've got right now? How can I just be open-minded? How can I stay, you know, opportunistic? Um, that something's going to come along you can work on it so I think it is a bit but but to me it's a bit like exercise you know you mm-hmm. have to consciously decide it because it's too easy just to slip into wallow and get those hobnobs out and feel a bit sorry for yourself but it's knowing when um it's knowing when to do which part of that isn't it because it's really easy the, the idea that it's okay not to be okay is also really important I know from having worked with you and having read the book it's not a sort of wanky, rah, 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 I can do anything, kind of high five sort of a book. It's, it's, it's kind of leaning into the different things that are going on around you 
and allowing them to be with some degree of, I guess it's a combination of self-compassion and some kind of motivation and knowing the balance. I certainly know that when I, when I've gone through a couple of kind of bouts of kind of real kind of deep depression, I say real depression, all depression is real, of course, but the, the combination of sometimes you just need to kind of get under the duvet and, and give up. Mm. Um, I know this sounds really naff and American, but someone said to me, nestle, don't wrestle, which is, it sounds really naff, but actually when anyone who's depressed um, and hears that will be like, do you know what? Fuck it. It does sound a bit naff, but yeah, but knowing when to do that, but also knowing when actually, even if walking to the end of the road or going to get a coffee today feels like a massive effort, I'm going to try and do that. And it mm. is that combination, isn't it? So I think it is kind of important for to, to stress that the book isn't sort of naively going, everything's great and just feel <laughs> glass half full. It's sort of, it's allowing all those bits to exist, the yeah. self-doubt, the shame, the upset, the hope. They're all in the book really, aren't they? Yeah, I think, and I think it's sort of like taking that all on as part of the process. As you say, I mean, there's a very different scenario when depression escalate some people as you say you know you, you probably need real um proper help in depression so that the book isn't around that side mm-hmm. of it the book is when you're just having a pity, pity party there's a big difference there but in yeah. terms of the sort of turning it around one of the things that I really love about the way in which you know I think that's really why you and I got on from when we first met is the idea that instead of hiding your flaws and trying to pretend well I'm this inspirational motivational figure mm-hmm. It's definitely being very overt about how much effort it takes to look effortless. So what is your attitude and the book's attitude to, to so-called failure? Mm. Yeah, there's there was loads of things when I started um, researching the book. And, and how I started doing was talking to people who'd been made redundant and um, interviewing them and what came up for them. And then I started doing a bit more research. And one of the things I thought oh my God, humour has got to come into this because it is so ridiculous, the things you find yourself doing. Um, and, the, and, you know, all of the things around you, the only way you can kind of get through it is by a bit of humour. So one of the things, well, Russell Brand was definitely one of my reference points, which I just love all of the stuff he does. And obviously he does all sorts of stuff now, but four years ago, um, he wrote a book and in it he talked about, basically he's made, his career out of everything going wrong and him then sharing it and then getting something good out of it. And I and thought a lot of well, shagging as well. He's done a lot of shagging. <laughs> Let's not forget that. <laughs> well, you know, if that's what it takes to get over, whatever you need to get over. Um, and so there was an element of that. And then I found um, a YouTube, I think it was a TED talk um, with a guy who did a hundred days of being rejected and it's called a hundred days of rejection. Um, I think I think his name was Zeng Yen, and it's just the funniest thing about he deliberately because he got so afraid of being rejected, he stopped um, applying for jobs he wanted and all of this stuff. It just got so much, so he thought, "I'm going to brace it full on." And he spent a hundred days of doing stuff to get rejected, and it's just the brilliant best thing you can. It's the kind of opposite of Danny Wallace's "Yes Man." (laughs) (laughs) It's the No Man, exactly. (laughs) It's right. It's sort of bizarre, but it does sort of help you you know when you get rejected from a job you didn't even want you've got a laugh about that but at the time you don't you get more and more depressed like oh my god I didn't even get I didn't even get the job that was a shit job but if you think about how ridiculous that is like you didn't want it why are you spending why are you now spending your precious energy upset about something you didn't want so I think that sort of whole embracing failure and rejection as part of progress as part of it's just going to happen to you and you can kind of take a almost a, a 
an outside view of it you know we remove yourself from it it's not personal it's just part of the process I think it's quite helping they say um they say tragedy plus time equals comedy. And I guess that's what you kind of hit upon with that. It's funny how um, I was talking to, um, to a friend of mine, we were sitting writing together the other afternoon and I was talking about so many difficult things that are happening at the moment, you know, not least that I'm about to become a full official empty nester, which I've been waiting for for years and now it's coming. I can't stop <laughs> yeah. crying. And I was talking about all the various challenges at the moment. And he was like, honestly, that you're going to be, <laughs> you know, this is going to propel you into a whole other level of comedy. And I was like, but I just can't see the funny yet. And he said, yeah, but you will. You will see the funny. And it takes a bit of, a bit of time. And is there, I, I love the um, Samuel Beckett quote, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. And again, it sounds kind of naff to think about failing forward or feeling or failing better. But there's something about not learning as much from a, a good gig as a bad gig. And that obviously absolutely applies to comedians. But really, metaphorically, I think it applies to everyone, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the things you realise. If you've lost your job out of a corporate life, corporate life, nobody fails in corporate life. I mean, it's just not, you don't, not allowed. That's not what happens. You're yeah. not allowed. You're definitely not allowed to talk about it. It could be different now. I don't know, with, you know, a bit more vulnerability, a bit more. Um, of that Renee Brown has narrative. turned things around a bit on the vulnerability scale. <laughs> we'll put links come, to her in that. Yeah, in the, in exactly. Too. Still a lot of resistance from my experience. Out yeah, there. but yeah. you know, in theory. But um, yeah, I think I think that you're just so conditioned that any kind of failure is embarrassing, and it's just a completely personal thing that you take on. If you can work on that and remove yourself from it, and just think, right, it's a redirection. Fine. I didn't want to do that even if it was your dream job that you've always wanted to do fine I'll move on it's fine you know you're going to keep yourself in a space that when something does come up you're going to be ready for it and that's the whole time it's almost this sort of selfish thinking I always say that to people you know you need to get really selfish with your thinking if you're just spending your time worrying about stuff that isn't helping you how is how is that even a good thing you know you get selfish get like right I'm not going to pay any attention to that it's happened it's gone right okay future think now where can I put energy where can I put things out there sow some seeds that you know something amazing might happen and the amount of people that just don't do it so they'll say to me oh my dream job is to work for blah 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 or work in the okay what have you done to take a step forward nothing Mm -hmm. okay what could you do like just try and connect with 20 people from that organization on LinkedIn who cares if they don't respond at least if they're stuck there you know you're gonna get you know you're gonna get the coaching income for months like if you're doing absolutely (laughs) fuck all between sessions I'm gonna be buying myself a Volvo having the house redone it's some I know when um when people are thinking either thinking of leaving a job or they've had to leave a job I know that when I kind of finally left the corporate world a couple of years ago, and by then I really knew I wanted to leave and it was definitely having a slightly toxic impact on me and my life and my mental health. And the difference between at one point really wanting to leave, just thinking I've just got to get out now, I've had enough, and then thinking, well, before I do, what is it, how would I like my life to be? And this probably does, I keep apologising for how naff and earnest this sounds, and I should know in the podcast not to apologise for being earnest because those are the bits (laughs) people also like to hear but it's tempting to be sort of self-deprecating about these things. But I do remember sort of realizing about a year after I'd left that I was kind of doing all the things I thought I'd like to do, like making a living out of speaking and broadcasting and comedy and writing. And I was like, oh, okay, 
you sometimes have to notice that you're you're in the thing that you really that you really <laughs> hoped you would get towards and that that's actually a, poss- a thing that's possible I also remember someone saying to me and I, I, you kind of touch on this in different ways in your book but when I left the sort of last big organization I left and people said to me if you're going to have any resentment or ill feeling or even kind of hatred I, I wouldn't say I ever, I've ever had any kind of hatred for anyone but not in my life but not in that situation but they said try not to have hatred for individuals or try not to have those bad feelings towards individuals if you're going to have a bad feeling have it towards the kind of organization and I know it sounds like a sort of similar thing but actually it was really helpful because you can't really bear a massive grudge against a whole massive organization whereas if you decide to remember the person from HR or you can get really um sort of aerated so do you have any in terms of letting go of any upset or any kind of feelings that might just drag you down or what's your experience of how to handle that? Yeah, so true. We get a bit hung up on that. And I think um, you're right, like an organisation was a bit like Wizard of Oz. You know, it's just this big sort of thing with a couple of people every now and again behind pulling strings. Mm -hmm. And And redundancy, job loss, contract ending, all that sort of stuff, it can feel very personal. And sometimes it is very personal, Mm -hmm. which is another thing I do address in the book. Sometimes you do have to have a think about why you lost your job. But most of the time it's not. And actually no one was really involved in that you know it was just a, 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 a decision up high and some sort of restructure and you were just kind of the fallout so I think it's back to that selfish thinking you know it, it's over you've got to move on you've got to detach you're not helping yourself by getting obsessed people do get obsessed yeah it does become obsessed like, like losing a partner yeah. doesn't it yeah 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 you do and yeah you can stalk them you know, quite often people who've lost their job altogether or lost a contract altogether will form a, a group. And sometimes yeah. that's great. And sometimes it's not because you can fuel it because all people spend their time doing is, oh, have you seen what they've done now? Oh, have you seen this? Oh, they'll never get that right. Oh, have you seen, you know, and that's what they're spending time on. Is that How is that helping? You've got to detach, get selfish and start thinking about, I'm going to own my future. I'm, I'm walking away from that. I couldn't care less what happens next. I'm over it. I'm all about me. And so I think it's just trying to really program yourself to be all about you a bit more. And if people, um, we, we touched on it at the beginning, and I know when you'd first um, when you'd first written the book and you and I had a kind of conversation and, and you talked about feeling like an imposter and it was so surprising to me because I just thought, God, if I just had this book published and everything and you were, you were getting profiled in the, in the media and you were having such, it seemed like such a great moment for you, yet on the inside your primary reaction was now I'm really going to get found out, right? There was a sort of like, <laughs> I've really, I've really gone too far. So, so, and you talk about imposter syndrome in your book. So wh- where are you at? What are your thoughts about imposter syndrome? Yeah. Sometimes I'm, I'm all about imposter syndrome. Other times I do think it's a bit of a label now that mm-hmm. we give ourselves because we've heard about it so much. Ever since Michelle Obama started exactly. going on about it. We're like, we'll all have a piece of that. Thanks, Michelle. That's sometimes what I think happens I'm like oh yeah I've got that yeah and now when I hear people say oh I've got that it's like we haven't really that you're just using it as a useful excuse and I think sometimes I was doing that I was like oh yeah I've got that I'll have a piece of that but I think what was actually going on was just that confidence it's just self-confidence and yeah when my book came out and as you say I've got some great media coverage and things but I'm not I'm not a big influencer I don't have a big social media following I'm not inter- I don't even know how to post really on social media that's why I was doing the course when I left <laughs> when I left corporate. didn't work did it proper waste it of money work. That was. I, exactly I have no idea 
at all. I never have done. I'm not that interested. But you do know how to herd sheep, real sheep, not metaphorical sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not even that. If I, if you, <laughs> if you ask my uh, parents, they'll be like, "Yeah, she can't even do that." <laughs> Absolutely useless. So I think there's um there's that that goes on in your head. I think that was more what suddenly hit me. I was like, "Oh my god, this is quite funny." Like I'm. I haven't got a massive following. I don't even know how did I get a book deal with Penguin. I'm not sure how this happened. Because if hey, you do know, could you tell me? Because I'd, I'd quite like one. <laughs> As would I'm I sure no people idea. listening. I manifested it. <laughs> <laughs> Noel Edmonds I, asked for it and then you got I it. I wrote it and I put an order out <laughs> to the universe and the order came back. Um, I so don't did know you think you were out of your debt? Did you just think I've just, I'm just in out of my debt now? Is that more what it felt like? That maybe, mm. you, maybe you didn't know the rules of the game or something? Maybe for a minute, but I've got to be honest, like when we were having that conversation, when I got told, I got a little note to say, can you hurry up and come and help with the sheep? That chat was actually a great chat that you had for me, because I think after that, I thought, oh, what the hell? I'm just going to fucking enjoy this, because that was kind of what you said. <laughs> you yeah. Like, oh, my God, enjoy this. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to enjoy it. This is probably never going to happen ever again. Like, you know, meeting interesting people, getting on people's podcasts being interviewed by Grazia, you know, all of that stuff. This this is maybe a one-time thing, so just enjoy. And I did. From that point, I never said no to anything. I embraced it. Ed, you know, literally said yes to everything. And so now I think you've at got, some point you can get on with it. You said, um, you know, we started the podcast. I'm about to ask you the three questions I ask everyone. But you st- we started the podcast talking about your little girl, about Hannah. And then you say in the acknowledgements for your book, Um, You say, and then family, of course, my husband, my mum, my dad, my brother, my daughter, who all quietly tolerate my random ideas, my energy to do stuff, often at 3am where this book started, and my low days when things don't go to plan. And again, I just thought that was such a lovely way to end the book. Uh, I know it was not the end of the book, the acknowledgements in the book, because at the end of the day, sometimes when all this kind of crap happens and mm. losing a job is enormously crap and, and you know, could not be more jeopardous for, for most people. But often when you think about what's going to matter in your rocking chair at the end of your days, the person who's really pissing you off at work or the, or the comedian, <laughs> yeah. you're like, why are they getting that show? And I'm not. You probably won't even remember their name at the end of your days, whereas there'll be other things that really matter. And it, yeah. it's so hard to see the difference between the two when you're in the thick of it, isn't it? Yeah, so true. Although you probably will remember that person. You know, you'll, you'll be in your rocking chair still quite angry about that person. Don't say that. <laughs> no, no. Um, it's true, though. It's perspective, isn't it? You know, I think that's what we can all just sit, have a little moment and then think, mm, do you know what? I'm probably all right. The majority of us in the UK, we're probably all right. So, um, yeah, and we've got to remember the people around us are probably taking the hits as much as we are. When we're That's going why I need up. more people around me, Eleanor. There's no point being in an empty nest because no bugger's going to take the hit. Um, I'm about to ask you the questions I ask everyone, but, but just one other extra question, a bonus question for you. In the book, there are loads of really good links. and So there are book recommendations, charity, rec- you know, charity support network, website recommendations. I'm putting you on the spot to ask you if there's, but is there one in particular that you'd, of all the ones you recommend in the book, is there any one in particular, apart from your own, Another Door, which we will put a link to, but is there any other one that you'd pick to recommend? Well, I guess um, if it's for sort of your mental health and you just need in that kind of, I don't know, that extra boost and it is all a bit too much headspace which I'm not sure exactly in the book 
it, a lot got edited out, but I think Headspace is a great place to go. So the Headspace Obviously app, the, med- the mindfulness yeah. app, yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. It's got everything on it. It'll really calm you. It really helps you get in a better space. And then obviously Mind, the charity Mind, I think they're doing amazing work. So Yeah, I liked, I first got into mindfulness um, on on Headspace. I also mm. went on to do a course for um, mindfulness for people with anxiety and depression, which I'll post a link to. I've talked about yeah. it in another episode. Um, and actually another one I really like on the mindfulness side of things is waking up with Sam Harris. And Sam Harris is, I think, a cognitive scientist. So he comes more from the science side. So he takes you through mindfulness, but he also explains what, and he's from the more sort of cynical left brain side of things. So I find it mm. really interesting that he's now become somebody who's yeah, um, yeah who, who's into that kind of thing namaste, motherfuckers. what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment <laughs> um yeah I was listening I've been listening to your podcasts and people have got amazing like life-changing moments where they like met celebrities and all this kind of stuff and I was like oh god I don't think I've actually done anything like that. But, um, they weren't life-changing moments. They were just them name-dropping. You they were might just have a real dropping. one. <laughs> I actually have a real one. What I was thinking was, I was like, I can't really think about this. This is a very good question. I actually think, I mean, back in the day, I, I'm from Carlisle, Cumbria, um, and it's known for, you know, prosperity and uh, growing its people. But there was a lot going on, let's face it. And it was before the internet came, and I was curious enough to kind of go into the Kala library and just go through books, business books, because I did believe there was more to life than Carlisle, but I didn't know what, you know, there was no mm. way of finding out like what else is out there. Obviously, we knew those universities and things like that, but what else is there? And I found in Carlisle Library a leaflet from the Advertising Association about this new business, kind of new, called Saatchi and Saatchi. And that was it. I got completely obsessed with. Saatchi Saatchi, I was going to go and work for them. Um, I got everything about them. I bought their books, I, everything. And I was completely clear that that was going to be what I did. Um, I didn't. They rejected me from the graduate program straight off. <laughs> not, even, not even an interview. But it definitely changed my life in terms of move away. Like move away from car. There's more, there's lots of different opportunities out there. It's definitely not in the county of Cumbria but down in the big smoke of London, there might be better opportunities. So I think it was that leaflet in Carlisle Library that actually changed things. It's funny, isn't it, how when you're brought up to expect a certain thing, it's hard to imagine, it's all you know, isn't it? So to suddenly find something that allows you a possibility of something completely different, you, I guess what you did with that is you kind of, you saw it sketched out. So something quite specific came into view and maybe yeah. going towards that very specific thing, even though you didn't end up working for them, as you say, probably sort of propelled you away. Because you from your parents uh, are your parents from a farming background, or are the sheep um, pet sheep that you have outside that? <laughs> oh no, we're, it's proper Lake District Cumbria farming. Yeah. So they probably think you're a right media self help wanker, but you know, they, no, they have no idea. <laughs> like what? Are you going to get a job? What are yeah, you doing? We're all saying that, Anna, but no. Um, so no, that's a really lovely one. That's right up there with people meeting celebrities. So um, you've definitely <laughs> earned your place in the Namaste motherfucking uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, so um, what's your favourite joke? So I went to the reliable source of um, my brother works for Mort McDonnell in Sheffield and uh-huh. they've got a whiteboard next to the coffee machine, which is the whiteboard of joy. And you can imagine what that's got on it, like loads of engineers and project managers in Sheffield. It's a lot of jokes. 
so yeah. this I mean if anytime you want it I can kind of <laughs> send you over at least a job a day a joke a day um but this one I quite like um which I'm not going to do very well but let's see if we can read it out okay what's the difference between a well-dressed man on a bicycle and a poorly dressed man on a tricycle you're gonna have to tell me a tire <laughs> It's quality. Um, the final question I always ask is everybody is if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anybody listening, what would it be? Yeah, my favorite thing I think is do it despite it. Do so, it despite it. Do it despite whatever's going on inside. Do it despite you going, oh my God, what, if, what do they think of me? What will people say? I'm not good enough. All of that stuff that's inside, if you just do it anyway. That's a very empowering moment that you're going to have with yourself. Brilliant. Thank you. And there's a, there was, um, I don't know if they still exist, but there was a creative agency called What If, who were very big about 20 years ago. They may still be. Um, we'll, we'll link to their books. Um, and they they wrote a couple of books, one um, called Sticky Wisdom. But again, it was a sort of creative manifesto for what if things are possible, right? you know, what if not to know yeah. because. So thank you very much. It's been brilliant having you on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> that was my lovely sheep herding friend eleanor tweddle now every episode i pick a thing inspired by my guest that i am going to try and this week it's actually two things the first is eleanor's idea of sketching out my ideal tomorrow scenario so just to recap what she said if it all were to come together and my ideal scenario were to exist tomorrow what would it look like and there is, by the way, some really lovely exercises around, um, if you look up Future Perfect, there are lots of things that I used to use when I was coaching people, and I still do sometimes, which are along those lines. So we'll, uh, we'll put some links to Future Perfect thinking in the show notes. Um, and the second thing I'm going to do this week is to write my bloody book proposal. And I know Hannah, my agent, if you're listening, that will come as something of a relief to you. Nearly a year overdue as it now is. So um, thank you, Eleanor, for giving me a little shunt out of the hallowed halls of procrastination. Namaste, Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and was produced by Mike Hansen and Karu Shadami for Pod People Productions. Music by Jake Yap. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show, not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, but because it helps other people find the show. And we will be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I will be talking to the outdoor trekking, cat-loving, stand-up comedian, Mr Ed Byrne. It was a BSc in horticulture I was doing, but a BSc is a, is a BSc and... There's a lot of biology, physics, chemistry and maths and it was all, it was difficult. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people.